Hello and welcome to episode 3 of the Great NHS Highest podcast with me, Dr Bob Gill and Dr Sarah Gangoli. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing uh, in tackling coronavirus and I'm very proud of, uh, of our record. When it comes to excess deaths, Britain's currently a world leader. Is that really something to be proud of? So we just heard Boris Johnson in Parliament as part of a piece that Newsnight did earlier this week. And we hear that Boris Johnson is proud of his record over coronavirus. But has he got anything to be proud of? Sarah, what do you think about what he said there? I mean, I, I really struggle to understand exactly what he can be proud of. Is he proud of the worst death rate in the world? Um, or that two days ago our daily death rate exceeded that of the EU27 combined? The official figure now stands at over 50,000 and in reality the figure is going to be much higher than that, probably in the mid-60s if you look at the FT analysis. Is he proud of the more than 200 health and care workers uh, who have died carrying out their duties? Is he proud of a report highlighting the health inequalities inflicted, inflicted on black and minority ethnic people in this country? Is he proud of a dysfunctional testing and tracking system palmed off to Tory cronies? Is he proud of scenes of police brutality? Is he proud of support, supporting a special advisor who flouted the lockdown rules, bringing the inequalities into sharp focus? What exactly is our Prime Minister proud of? Well, that's quite an impressive list. <laughs> I uh, struggle to understand where he's coming from, but it, it doesn't surprise me. A lot of the statements we hear from government and spokesmen, it's almost as if they're gaslighting us. They are saying something that is blatantly not true, but saying it with such strength and conviction. Uh, but I'm sure they don't believe at all what they're saying. In fact, the Newsnight piece went on to say that the number of deaths in, in the UK exceeded the total for the whole of the rest of Europe. Yes. So these are staggering figures. Um, and, you know, leave me shocked. And as, as a working GP, it's had a devastating toll on the running of the practice. So we, we are aware of the direct and indirect deaths that have already taken place, but what about the undiagnosed cancers, the people who are seriously ill and avoiding coming to see us? You know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we exceed the 100,000 mark in due course once, we, once we've established the direct, indirect and longer term effects of this crisis. No, I, I, I wouldn't be at all surprised either. And I think that what, what, we, what we will see is that when this pandemic abates, that we will be left with serious problems um, in the health service. And we're also going to be left with serious levels of patient dissatisfaction with the service that they're going to receive, because the waiting lists are going to be enormous uh, for these people to be seen. You're right to highlight the lack of presentation um, for cancer uh, symptoms. Currently, there's a two-week wait policy where patients can urgently be seen if there is a suspected cancer. But also, I think we're going to be left with a very serious mental health crisis. We already had a crisis in mental health and mental health care provision in this country prior to this pandemic. I feel that the, the lockdown and the, the lack of services for these people is going to have made that much, much worse. And the economic toll that's Indeed. going to come along. But if, if we pay attention to the reports that are 
leaking out. We hear that the the scientific advisors to the government are breaking ranks. There was a very good dispatches program earlier this week, which showed many inconsistencies and problems, uh, holes in what the government has been telling us. But if we go back to March the 12th, which seems to be a key date, because from what we know now, from what was revealed in the Times and, and other journalistic uh, work, was that was the point at which the alarm bells were ringing within the scientific warnings and the projections in terms of the death toll. But I think it'd be useful to re-listen to what we were being told by Boris Johnson yes. at the time. I've got to be clear, we've all got to be clear, this is the worst public health crisis for a generation. Some people compare it to seasonal flu. Alas, that is not right. Owing to the lack of immunity, this disease is more dangerous and it's going to spread further. And I, I must level with you, level with the, the British public. Um, more families, uh, many more families, are going to lose loved ones before their time. So the phrase that strikes me from that short clip is telling people that he's afraid they're going to lose loved ones. Now this is quite a staggering change in tune given that he was reassuring everybody how benign and how mild this infection would be. Um, and now he seems to be setting people up for expecting yes. a significant death toll. I mean, the, the, the Irish Taoiseach, uh, Leo Varadkar, um, who, you know, I, I would have serious issues with, with some of his approaches, but he said something similar. But he said it as he was locking the country down. You know, he, he said it as he was uh, announcing quite aggressive measures to prevent the spread of this and also providing um, Irish citizens with quite, with decent um, benefits so that they could stay at home. I mean, the, the, the contrast in, when, when you look at Johnson's international contemporaries, the contrast could not be more stark. These are people who took seriously the needs of their population and they acted, as opposed to somebody who just looks like he's on, he's on some kind of PR stunt all the time. Yeah, it definitely has the structure and the wording of a PR campaign unfolding rather than a campaign yes. to deal with the pandemic. Let's go to the next clip. The most important task will be to protect our elderly and most vulnerable people during the peak weeks when there is the maximum risk of exposure to the disease and when the NHS will be under the most pressure. So the most dangerous period is not now, but some weeks away, depending on how fast it spreads. Today, therefore, we're moving forward with our plan. From tomorrow, if you have coronavirus symptoms, however mild, either a new continuous cough or a high temperature, then you should stay at home for at least seven days to protect others and help slow the spread of the disease. We advise all those over 70 with serious medical conditions against going on cruises, and we advise against international school trips. At some point in the next few weeks, we are likely to go further. Well, what do you think of that? I mean, 
what flavor do you like your fabrication um you know there's fabrication on top of fabrication there the, the whole period was dangerous you know this 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 was this was the time that we were entering the exponential phase of this pandemic but i think listening to him saying that he wished to protect the elderly and vulnerable people it actually makes me quite angry because he has done his government they have done anything but that you know there was a policy to discharge either covid positive or untested people with or without symptoms um, back to nursing homes where the staff were unaware um, and didn't have appropriate ppe and there were no means of uh, isolation within the care homes um, we also know from a health service uh, journal article that admissions to care homes and nursing homes actually exceeded seasonal average. Okay, so the, the, there's concrete data to say that more people were, were being pushed into the care sector. This is not how we protect our most vulnerable. You know, we protect our most vulnerable by ensuring that the staff have proper protective equipment so that they can be protected. We protect our most vulnerable to make sure that they're not being exposed to people with this virus. This government did everything they could not to protect the most vulnerable. And we also know this is around the time that the alarm bells were ringing amongst his scientific advisors. As you say, other countries had taken very firm, very swift action, but he's just announcing action at a future date. And he's transferring responsibility onto the patient yes. for them to self-isolate without actually knowing whether they have the virus or not. So no testing policy being revealed. Let's see what else he says. And if someone in a household has those symptoms, we will be asking everyone in that household to stay at home. We're not introducing this measure yet for reasons Sir Patrick will explain, but I want to signal now that this is coming down the track. So he's telling us for people to self-isolate and preparing us for household members to quarantine, but not yet. Now, on what planet does that make any sense? Because we know the highest proportion of transmission is within households. We know that China provided separate accommodation for people who tested positive for coronavirus and also tested the household to make sure none of those were infected. Yes. What he's outlined here makes no medical sense whatsoever. No, it's, I mean, it, this was really the point at which it was becoming very, very clear that the government's approach was not scientific, was never going to be evidence-based. Um, they were not heeding the warnings um, coming from other countries, really, when we saw the pictures in Italy, that was the time for our government to act. There was also the implicit suggestion that somehow our scientists were better than everybody yes. else's scientists. Somehow the UK were particularly gifted in managing this crisis and we weren't going to copy other countries. I seem to get that impression. There was some arrogance on display here, some pretense that everything was under control just listen to us and do as you're told as we tell you i mean i remember watching twitter um, around this time and there was a lot of that nostalgic wartime rhetoric um i even remember 
when people were saying, you know, look at what Germany's doing, you know, Germany was mo at that stage, you know, mobilizing, testing, uh, quite a robust testing system, it turns out. Um, and their numbers of deaths actually prove that their approach was much better than ours. And people were going, you know, two world wars and one world cup. I mean, that, that, that's how ridiculous this was becoming. So not only was there this arrogance coming from government, but this was feeding through to people and people somehow felt that they were, that they were immune and it was, it was dangerous. You know, it's, it, it's not just irritating and ascientific, it's dangerous. And that, that downplaying of the severity, the lack of action, will have an effect on how seriously the public took it in the future. Yes. Uh, you know, how well they would stick to personal hygiene measures, distancing and uh, the lockdown. So he was setting up for the lockdown not to be so successful, I think, in what he was saying. But the messaging was so confusing, people did not know what to do. And that confusion led to panic, led to the scenes in the supermarket, which you know, thankfully, we're, we're not seeing anymore, but it led to, you know, the panic buying, of, you know, mass buying of toilet paper and all sorts of essential goods, the emptying of supermarket shelves. If the government had been clear on their messaging, if the government had been clear about the risks, then there would be no need for panic. And we know from, again, the uh, Times report, Sunday Times report, that in fact, the three week delay may have in fact led to an extra 1.2 million people becoming infected wow. in that three-week yeah. period. And that translates, of course, to, you know, tens of thousands of deaths. We are considering the question of banning major public events such as sporting fixtures. And the scientific advice, as we, we've said over the last couple of weeks, is that this uh, banning such events will have little effect on the spread. There's another announcement which, speaking as a doctor, made no sense. We know at this time um, public health professionals outside of government were sounding the alarm. Um, Professor John Ashton took the decision himself. He had tickets to go to the Atletico Madrid Liverpool football match. He decided not to go. And we know the Cheltenham Festival went ahead, that football match went ahead. The consequence has been outbreaks in the Liverpool area around Cheltenham, which has been a direct consequence of those public sporting events. So they were wrong again. And the scientific advisor he's quoting, Jenny Harries, um, was on camera making this point with mm -hmm. Boris Johnson. But proven wrong once, yeah. once again. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing was is that Atletico Madrid weren't actually able to play at their home stadium. Yeah. So they travelled from one of the, at that, that time, was becoming one of the hotspots of the, of the pandemic. They travelled from there to Liverpool um, with their fans to play this match. The Cheltenham Festival, I mean, the pictures of people crammed into stands was just, it, it was, it filled me with dread personally, because I was thinking, you know, each one of these people, they're being exposed to so many potentially infected contacts. How can these events not be associated with an outbreak? There's also um, an Italian professor, this was in the Dispatches programme actually, 
the other night who talked about the outbreak in Bergamo in northern Italy being associated with um, a successful football result. Now, it wasn't necessarily the football match that was associated with the increase in, ca in cases, but it was people out celebrating. It was people out in the bars and the restaurants socialising. So we know that being in contact with many different people increases your risk of getting a virus, any virus, but particularly one which in, in, in which we are in a pandemic situation with, which is really quite infectious. We know that this virus likes to infect people. And we know it from over 100 years ago with the so-called Spanish flu. Uh, two different cities in America, one, one cancelled public events, the other carried on. Yes. And there was a far greater death toll in the one that allowed the public event to continue. At all stages, we have been guided by the science and we will do the right thing at the right time. We are not, repeat not, closing schools now. The scientific advice is that this could do more harm than good at this time. So that is the one of the most often used phrases, led by the science, following the science. But we know that's not right. Yeah. We know now from dispatches that several of the scientists on the SAGE group were saying we needed to act a lot sooner and lo a, a, a lockdown immediately. We know that they were warning about the excessive death toll should they not take any measures to contain the spread. But this is part of the propaganda as well, isn't it? To continually repeat a line to transfer responsibility yes. from the government's actions and uh, also set up future scapegoats. And yeah. they have used the scapegoats. We saw how the right-wing press uh, hung out to dry Professor Neil Ferguson, who was the uh, expert who led to the, the computer analysis of the potential effect of the virus. Yeah, I mean, the, the, this was all about setting up the scientific community as scapegoats. Boris Johnson has surrounded himself by people from the Vote Leave campaign. Okay, and Michael Gove himself himself said that they have had enough of experts. They created this culture where experts were viewed with suspicion. Now suddenly they're lauding the experts. The experts are leading their uh, their their approach. When we know when there 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 is good evidence now that the scientists were giving them different advice and they were refusing to follow them now, whether that was for economic reasons, whether that was for PR reasons whether it was for some other reason, we'll probably never know. But their approach from the outset and continuing to this very day has never been led by the science. We do know a bit more about who sat on this uh, SAGE committee. Yes. There doesn't appear to be one public health no. professional on the committee. So you had other experts like uh, epidemiologists, but no clinical public health specialist. And I think that says a lot about you know what they wanted to hear and what they were prepared to hear as a government. It does say a lot and it's quite telling that members of the SAGE committee are actually coming out in opposition to the current uh, government approach. Uh, perhaps they realise themselves that they are to be scapegoated in the future. And we also had at the end of that clip the, the delaying of the closure of schools. Yes, and of course schools have just reopened again for um, a group of children who like to, you know, have physical contact. 
you know, we like to, you know, touch each other, share each other's food, um, you know, all, so, all sorts of things. That their approach, even on a purely logical level, when you understand the concepts of how one becomes infected by a respiratory virus, even on that basis alone, their approach makes no sense. There will be detailed information available on the NHS website and from 111 online. But I want to stress something that's very important in the wake of what we're saying this afternoon. Uh, I urge people who think in view of what we're saying about their potential symptoms that they should stay at home. I urge them not to call 111, but to use the internet uh, for information if they can. So what is striking about what we've just heard there, there's a group of health professionals who are completely bypassed by what he's saying here. The general practitioner who is the heart of community care and the foundation of the NHS has been airbrushed out of their whole system for coping. And what he's set up is a 111 uh, telephone service and directing people to the computer. Now, if you think of who's the most vulnerable group, who's most susceptible, who might be uh, needing services the most, the elderly. Mm. Well, they're not the most IT savvy and they've been blocked from accessing their GP. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's quite astonishing that he talks about 111, he talks about, um, you know, Dr. Google, essentially. But at no point has he considered the role that GPs uh, should be playing in this. I mean, GPs potentially had a key role in tackling this pandemic, whether it was through, you know, assessing patients, uh, you know, doing telephone triage or um, contact tracing. All of these things should be done by qualified people, not by people reading from a pro forma, such as 111. And we know that in the early days, people had serious problems getting through to 111. A lot of people were given you know, advice to stay at home when they were in extremists, for example, as well. Yeah. Um, but asking patients to diagnose themselves is not appropriate when we have qualified, knowledgeable personnel on hand. For you know, the same people, the patients know their doctor, they have an element of trust, the doctor has all their records. On every level, it made sense to use primary care, which now had spare capacity because we'd stopped doing routine work. And as you say, patients of ours have experienced significant trouble accessing 111 and also being given the wrong advice. One of the important steps in privatisation of the National Health Service is this concept of demand management. Um, and I wonder whether part of the idea of getting patients to use Google and diagnose themselves and, and get used to speaking to a non-doctor on the telephone, whether this is part of demand management, whether this is part of cheapening um, the service. Yeah, it's, it's eroding expectation, it's lowering expectation and normalising healthcare without a doctor. Yes. And that's fundamental to the privatisation trajectory we're following. Because this disease is particularly dangerous uh, for you, for older people, even though the vast majority of older people uh, will experience a mild to moderate illness, I know that many people will be very worried. 
And I think we should all be thinking about our elderly uh, relatives, the more vulnerable members of our family, our neighbours, and everything we can do to protect them over the next few months. We're going to need to mobilise millions of people to help and support each other. And I just want you to know that the government will do all we can to help you and your family during this period. This is particularly interesting to understand what's happening here. We're seeing more of the transfer of responsibility for managing what was unfolding onto the individual, yes. away from the government. This is saying, look, you're on your own. The government will help you, but there are no firm plans in terms of what the government's going to do. And telling us to look after our neighbours and telling us to rally round and take care of each other. But we know in order to manage a pandemic, there's a central function for a coordinated, well thought out, evidence-based government yes. approach. And he has stepped back from all of that. And this is from a, a government whose central ideology is, is, breaking down, is about breaking down societal cohesion. You know, suddenly we're all expected to look out for each other um, at a time when many people are going to be sick, a lot of people are going to be frightened, and many people will be facing destitution. And it's also in stark contrast in his own beliefs, which he's expressed in his writings and also in speeches, which we'll come to, yes. come to later on. So I'd like to end by repeating the two important messages with which you will become uh, familiar. Uh, it is still vital, perhaps more vital than ever, that we remember to wash our hands. And lastly, of course, even if uh, things seem tough now, uh, just to remember that we will get through this, this country will get through uh, this epidemic, just as it has got through many uh, tougher experiences before, if we look out for each other and commit wholeheartedly to a full national effort. So he finishes off with uh, wishful thinking, giving the impression that they know what they're doing in order to protect as much life as possible, which clearly they, they weren't, as we have the highest death rate in the world, and appealing to the national effort. There's a common theme in all yes. this messaging. Nothing to do with us, all down to the individual and good luck. Yeah. And again, you know, harking back to this kind of this nostalgic, um, kind of jingoistic uh, instinct, which he seems to have. I mean, it, it reminds me of a clip of Jacob Rees-Mogg around the same time walking into cabinet office and they were saying, you know, what, what's the government doing? And he turns around and he says, wash your hands to the national anthem. And, th and that seemed to be their, their solution to everything. You know, wash your hands and sing God save the Queen. You know, in recent weeks we've heard of, you know, pick for Britain. It's you know? almost like a it, comedy sketch. If, 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 it w if it wasn't so tragic, this would be, this, this could easily be mistaken for satire. So coming on to the whole point of a lockdown. To me, the whole point of a lockdown is to slow down the spread and buy time in which you would set up a system to test patients, contact trace, and break the transmission of the virus. But in fact, the three months we've 
had the lockdown. Very little of that has happened. And we now hear announcements about a testing and tracing system, which is not functional. Lockdown, as in mass lockdown, is not actually necessary. You know, look at South Korea, for example, where they had, you know, local lockdowns where there were, you know, smaller outbreaks and what have you. But we're now in a situation where time, precious time, has been wasted. Um, they, they tried to roll out this app on the Isle of Wight um, that apparently didn't work. It didn't meet um, Apple's security uh, requirements, for example. Since Monday, they started this, um, this telephone contact tracing with predominantly medically unqualified staff, many of whom have a customer services type background. And minimal training. Minimal training, minimum wage. The system crashed on the first day. Many of the contact tracers weren't told until late the night before that they were actually going to be starting work. There's a piece in Private Eye uh, this week about a nurse who's applied to be a contact tracer and she couldn't even get onto the training system. She's a qualified, experienced nurse who wants to be a contact tracer. That's the ideal person to do the job, you know? Yet in, in countries that have been successful and yes. have had done much better with the pandemic, They've relied on people with medical training, medical students, uh, community health teams to do face-to-face -face contact tracing. We haven't replicated no, that. No, we haven't even attempted to replicate it. Again, and all these volunteers who gave their names and yeah. to, to come forward and help the NHS, we haven't taken up the offer, have no. we? No, and, and, and again, this is, this is the lack of evidence-based approach. We, we now have a body of evidence about what works in this particular pandemic, about what has, uh, as well as what has worked before in previous epidemics, which may or may not have affected us in this country. But the government is refusing to even entertain that evidence and is going it alone. It's, it's, tried, it's trying the app, it's trying this new contact tracing service, which apparently, you know, is already, it's already been open to fraud. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a very, very worrying uh, situation. The when you say open to fraud, is that with um, people pretending to be contact tracers? Yes, people are and... getting telephone calls because it's all done through the telephone. Yeah. And apparently you're, you're only going to be called from a particular number. Now, you can, I mean, the, the government has said that you can be given uh, a code to actually enter your details online so you don't actually have to give any details online. But, you know, people who are vulnerable, people who are scared, maybe people who um, have been victims to scams before. These are the people who are excessively vulnerable to this kind of fraud. Um, and there, there, there have been telephone calls already from people pretending to be contact tracers. But the, the, the really central point is, is that this tracing mechanism, this telephone tracing mechanism was rolled out at the same time as easing of the lockdown. This needed to be up and running before lockdown was eased. This needed to be proven safe and effective before children went back to school and people were coerced back into work. Because it is people being coerced back into work. It's people who are economically vulnerable, who are being forced to go back to work because for fear of destitution. Did they learn any lessons from their experience with SAGE, the fact that we were doing so badly, you would have thought the test and trace system now would be led by somebody who knows what they're doing, led by somebody with 
years of public health experience, maybe ideally a medical background. Who have they got who's leading this whole system? Well, it's one of their buddies, isn't it? The name that I hear is D Dido, Dido Harding, Harding yeah. who has no medical training, uh, was previously chief executive of the mobile phone company TalkTalk, Talk, which got into legal difficulty because they they uh, breached patients, uh, sorry, customer data. <laughs> yeah. And her husband, who is a Tory MP, has expressed views that call for the abolition of the NHS to be replaced by an insurance system. So you have somebody with no um, credentials in supporting the NHS and certainly no relevant experience. Who else have they got? They've got the son of the former Margaret Thatcher minister, uh, Douglas Hurd, mm. who is tipped to be the next head of MI6. Yes. So we have a public health crisis being managed by somebody who's come out of the mobile phone industry and somebody connected to secret services. What's going on here? And in fact, you would go so far as to say that, you know, Dido Harding is a, is a failed C CEO. So not only do they not have adequate credentials to run a public health service, but they don't seem to have adequate credentials in the business world either. Um, so we're, we're, we're dealing with um, mediocrity on top of ignorance um, and it's, and it's, it, it's dangerous. Um, but this is cronyism, isn't it? This is lining, lining the pockets of your chums. It, it does appear that way. The other, other little nugget about her is that she is connected to the Cheltenham Racecourse. So, yes. and we know the fiasco around not cancelling the Cheltenham Festival and what that led to. And, and interestingly, Matt Hancock um, in his constituency has a notable racetrack as well. And um, we note that one of, the, one of the sporting sectors which has been given the go-ahead um, to start up again is horse racing. So you wonder about financial conflicts of interest of key decision makers in the midst of a pandemic. Indeed. It, you know, it's alarming stuff. And lobbying as well. You know, you... you yeah. You... And lobbying, ultimately, it's... There's a financial reward yep. there, isn't there? You know, the politicians who make themselves available, uh, act as mouths for hire for whatever interest it is, it's in return for financial reward. Yes. And, you know, one of the more tragic elements of what's gone on is what's happened in our nursing homes up and down the country. I managed to watch a very informative uh, news piece on Sky News just over a week ago, which interviewed staff and relatives uh, of, of people affected in the nursing homes. So let's just have a listen to this first clip. runs a care home in Leeds. She emailed me after the Downing Street press briefing. 19 of her residents died in two weeks. She says she didn't receive the PPE the government promised and has struggled to get tests. She's joined by Pearl Jackson, the home owner, and who's been in the care business for 40 years. We're getting told that every staff member in healthcare and every resident, regardless whether they've got symptoms or not, will be tested. It's a lie. Out of 62 staff members that I've got, three of them have been tested, three. So for two weeks, I had no gloves and I had no masks delivered. We've even considered buying marigolds 
and some sterilising tablets. We were getting that desperate at one point. In recent weeks, hospital admissions have begun to fall. But Pearl told me about one resident who was denied hospital treatment by doctors. She was gasping for air. It was confirmed by the paramedics and what appeared to happen, and I've got a note here that um, from the manager, um, it, it was rejected to take her to hospital by a, a consultant somewhere who didn't know her. And then he advised the paramedic to get the GP on the iPad who could speak to the person and say, look, you're going to die. It's going to be a matter of hours and you're not going to hospital. She pleaded with them to take her to hospital. And the family stood outside the window into the evening and watched her down. Is there any way of justifying that? I don't know. No, they should be able to die with dignity. And that's the one thing. But they got deprived of dying with dignity as well. With no treatments, no oxygen. How can you leave someone gasping for air? So that's quite a, a powerful segment there, which reveals several failings. First of all, the lack of PPE. Second, the discharging of COVID positive patients back into nursing homes to potentially infect and spread the virus amongst the most vulnerable group in society. And the third and probably the most disturbing to me is how these sick people who were approaching death were essentially abandoned within the nursing home and not given the medical care and assessment and even the consideration of a hospital admission by doctors who are making decisions without seeing the patient. It's truly shocking. I mean, the, the, that testimony of that uh, care home worker was chilling. You know, to think that it has been normalised to abandon the most clinically vulnerable patients, to not even offer them the dignity of good palliative care. So you, you, you have the tragic suffering of the sick patient. You have the psychological impact on the staff that yes. are trying to care yes. for them, seeing people that they've nursed for years dying in such a distressed manner. And you have the family who are denied access to their dying relative, who ultimately is left to die with strangers or certainly with non-family members. On multiple levels, mm. on a human level, this is a catastrophic failure of, of us as a society to look after those that have given so much that post-war generation, the people we supposedly honour and respect, in fact, in reality, we cast them adrift. This is the generation that gave us the NHS. Um, uh, the, the generation that you know, built houses after the war while rationing was still going on. Um, these are our, our grandparents, these are our supposedly our loved ones, and we as a society have let them down very, very cruelly. But worse than that, the, the crisis in care homes is still ongoing. And we don't know how bad it actually is. We have no way of knowing how significant, how, how significant a problem this is going to be when the final figures are actually counted. Um, we know that 
people in care homes, staff in care homes still are struggling to get adequate PPE. And Bob, you're absolutely right to point to the, the trauma um, of care home staff. Don't forget that staff working in care homes often don't have particularly robust training. Um, they're often very poorly paid. Um, staff retention is low. A lot of them are non-British born as well. Again, these are workers who we should be protecting. These are economically and psychologically vulnerable workers. And again, we're letting them down. You know, both of us have been in situations where we've known that people are seriously sick and we expect their imminent death. And, but we've been in a situation where we've been able to alleviate yes. their suffering. We've been able to give them drug, drugs to ease their pain, to ease their passage out of this world. But these people were left to see this struggling people gasping for air, calling out for help. And that, that is deeply traumatizing. It's, and it's deeply traumatizing for the family. I mean, that, 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 the, 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 the grief process is difficult enough without all these unanswered questions. And these families are going to have unanswered questions again Bob, you and I will have both been in situations of having to explain to families um, that their loved ones are going to die or perhaps they have, they have died. And one of the things that we can do as doctors is we can actually give people a decent death. Denying people in care homes that decent death is, is cruel beyond imagination. So later on in the Sky report, the journalist put a question to Matt Hancock. You knew and your department knew that this was a high risk area. I wonder if you will take this opportunity to apologise to those families of loved ones who died in care homes because the government didn't properly protect them. That's, the thing is, Nick, I think, that's, um, I think that's unreasonable as a question, actually. Making sure that care homes have the support they need has been absolutely at front of mind right from the start, especially because people are more frail uh, and therefore they're more at risk. The elderly have paid a high price in this pandemic. A staggering 40% of all COVID-19 deaths have been in care homes and the numbers are still rising. The health secretary said the care sector was a priority and had always been a priority. In my, my personal opinion and experience, it hasn't been. I think carers are the unforgotten heroes in all of this. And she was a hero. She put her life at risk every day going to work. And sadly, she lost her life through that. How can you shield a, a nation of the vulnerable if you're not going to shield the most vulnerable? Patients are being sent in all the time from hospital patients carrying a deadly virus. We have to be the voice of the, the elderly generation. If we don't speak up, no one will know what's happened. I almost said at one point, it's, it's like we're a sacrifice. Um, am I wrong? I don't know. So Matt Hancock's response to a reasonable question was to try and attack the questioner. It's Trumpian, isn't it? Yeah. Now, this is exactly what Trump does. He, he, he attacks people who ask him 
quote, nasty questions, unquote, uh, and yet takes no responsibility for his actions or policy failures. Um, the, the other point in that clip that's important to uh, highlight is that the ONS data published a couple of weeks ago did say that people working in social care have a higher death risk than the overall population. And that's even above people working in the National Health Service. A vulnerable group of workers, the most vulnerable people in society, clearly not protected, no matter what the government continually tried to state. And what is interesting for me is how there's a pattern emerging, and we've seen it on social media, with an organised group of people trying to hound and silence those journalists brave enough and determined enough to hold people to account. Piers Morgan, we, we, we know that he was being attacked on Twitter. Yes. Emily Maitlis had to, um, the BBC had to an issue, issue a clarification and an apology because she just stated fact. So you have the government and its supporters all having an organised campaign to stop journalists from doing their job. Yeah, and I think we've seen the ultimate example of that in America over the past week where journalists have been um, arrested, attacked and shot by police um, as they try to cover um, the, the riots over there over the past week. And we know for a functioning democracy, if you do not have a strong fourth estate to hold power to account, to expose the failings of power, then you don't really have a true democracy. You don't have a democracy. I mean, I think that everything we've seen um, with the, the the Cummings issue, with the the fabrications um, that we're exposed to on an almost daily basis through the press, from the government, the drip feeding of statistics, all of these things really point to the fact that our democracy is very very broken. So if we move on to the easing of the lockdown, now it seems to me completely illogical to even announce an easing of the lockdown when you have so many new cases being diagnosed. The figure recently published was around 8,000 new diagnoses of coronavirus. We have still the highest death rate compared to the whole of Europe, the whole of the rest of Europe. We don't have a robust testing and tracing system in place, and yet we're pulling out of lockdown. I mean, they announced that the ch youngest children were going to go back to school, and naturally enough, the teaching unions came out and and said, "Well, this is this safe? You know, we want we want to see the evidence." And of course, they were roundly attacked by the government and the right wing media uh, for doing so. Um, but you also had calls from portions of the right saying, you know, we need to get the economy working again. Now, really, the subtext of that is that, you know, we, we, we need to get um, low paid workers back into work so that they can continue being exploited, making money for the <laughs> for the bosses um, and getting the economy going again. This, this, this is an, this is an, a short sighted economic decision. This is, this is not based on scientific evidence. It's not based on sound public health policy. 
And who, who would argue against the need to get the economy going again? The fact is they've done, they've been very late about everything. They did a partial lockdown. It was never a true lockdown. And they failed to use that time to set up a good testing uh, system. So we are in a much worse position. And the economic hit we're going to take is because of the repeated failures or conscious decisions of government. Now, I don't think they wanted to take the economic hit, but other negative outcomes from the pandemic, I think ideologically, they're not that unhappy about. No, and even the economic hit, you know, th this, this is probably going to lead to another prolonged era of austerity. And we know that in times of austerity, it is those with the narrowest shoulders who will bear the greatest burden um, in terms of their services being cut, safety nets being removed and ultimately in numbers of deaths um, and you know uh, deterioration in health um, indices but i think that the timing of this is is really quite interesting um, because this comes on the back of um, the mirror and the guardian exposing dominic cummings um, having broken lockdown and, and in quite a spectacular way you know, I mean, he, he, he didn't just go and, you know, have coffee in someone's garden. He put his symptomatic family in the car while he was symptomatic himself and drove 300 miles to his parents' estate, because that's what it is, it's an estate, um, in Durham. So he drove from London to Durham while he was symptomatic. With a four-year-old in the back yeah. who, in an enclosed space, is exposed to high volumes of virus particles circulating around the car. It's quite interesting how, when you look into this matter further, his wife actually, Mary Wakefield, gave an interview on BBC Radio 4. Let's have a little listen, okay. listen to what she has to say. Mary Wakefield is the commissioning editor of The Spectator, where she's written about her own experience. Her husband, Dominic Cummings, is the Prime Minister's chief advisor. Here are some of her reflections. My version of the virus began with a nasty headache and a grubby feeling of unease, after which I threw up on the bathroom floor. That evening, as I lay on the sofa, a happy thought occurred to me. If this was the virus, then my husband, who works 16-hour days as a rule, would have to come home. I let myself imagine a fortnight in bed with mild symptoms, chatting to Dorman's son through an open door. More fool me. My husband did rush home to look after me. He's an extremely kind man, whatever people assume to the contrary. But 24 hours later, he said, I feel weird, and collapsed. I felt breathless, sometimes achy, but Dom couldn't get out of bed. Day in, day out, for 10 days he lay doggo with a high fever and spasms that made the muscles lump and twitch in his legs. He could breathe, but only in a limited, shallow way. The little oxygen reader we'd bought on Amazon indicated he should be in hospital. But his lips weren't blue. And he could talk in full sentences, such as, Please stop staring at my chest, sweetheart. Just as Dom was beginning to feel better, it was reported that Boris was heading in the other direction, into hospital. I've been a slack Christian during this era of biblical plague. Churches are shut, even Catholic churches, and somehow that makes more of a difference than I thought it would. One of the reasons I converted was because the doors of Catholic churches were always open, the sanctuary lamp lit, and now they're closed, it feels as if someone's turned off the spiritual stopcock. But what is there to do for the sick now, except pray? 
I got to my knees for Boris and found to my surprise that my prayers flowed easily as if carried along in a current of others. So listening to that, what springs to mind is this sounds like a very persuasive person who's God-fearing, um, has a lovely marriage uh, with a devoted husband who, with his uh, sense of duty for the nation, seems to be working round the clock. But what also causes me pause for thought is the timing and the access. You know, it's mm. not possible for me or you to get an interview on Radio 4. Um, she, you know, she, wor she works for The Spectator magazine. She's a high-profile journalist. She seemed to be doing a PR campaign yes. for her husband. Yeah, quite incredible, isn't it? I mean, St. Dominic never sounded so good. Um, she certainly uh, painted a lovely picture of him. But um, there was one thing missing from that interview and her own Spectator article was the trip up to Durham. Yep. No mention of no that. No mention of it at all. And that's and and this 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 was done when um, apparently he'd become symptomatic um, at this stage. They drove this. They they did this trip, which apparently took five hours. The four-year-old in the back didn't need to stop. Strangely enough, um, they got there. Apparently, um, he owns. Uh, he has the deeds to a cottage on his father's estate. They stayed there. But then there's the, also the question of the the eye test trip to uh, Barnard Castle. Now, when Dominic Cummings gave his press conference, he asserted that his eyes had been affected by whatever illness he had had. And rather than attempting to drive to London, he thought he would test his eyes by putting his family in the car and driving 30 minutes to Barnard Castle. Which, from what I hear, is a beautiful destination. It's a beauty spot, yeah. Which just happened to be on the day of his wife's birthday. There's quite an interesting analysis of his Sunday afternoon statement conducted by the Financial Times. The account he gave seemed to be constructed to fit the sightings that had taken place. Yes. And very, very much likely drafted by a lawyer, very carefully phrased. Now, some people might argue this has been given undue attention. Why should we worry about one individual? You know, what's the big deal? He's given his account, although he refused to apologise. Um, he, he argues he didn't break the rules, although the police disagree. Why, do, why should we give this any more thought? Well, I think, that, you know, yes, yes, this is just one individual, but we have to remember who this individual is. He's, he's remarkably uh, powerful. Um, he was also sitting in on um, scientific committees um, as they were deciding on the government's approach. It's also worth noting that Dominic Cummings is um, a proponent of social Darwinism. Okay, so he he quite liked the initial idea of herd immunity, um, and. He was quoted in the Times as essentially saying, well, you know, we'll go for herd immunity and so what if a few elderly people die? So not only was he prepared to risk lives, but through his actions, lockdown was essentially over. How on earth can you expect the population to obey quite harsh lockdown rules and regulations when somebody like Dominic Cummings has been given a free pass? 
And we saw, we saw with the uh, bank holiday weekend, the glorious weather, how crowded the beaches were. People who were unable to attend relatives' funerals, who were unable to do so much that was very important to them, felt betrayed, felt like they'd been taken for fools by, by a senior advisor to the Prime Minister. You mentioned herd immunity. Now, although they're backtracking from ever uh, mm. having that as a policy, this clip from Sir Patrick Vallance, the Chief Medical Officer, spells out clearly what they had planned. To try and reduce the peak, broaden the peak, not to suppress it completely. Also, because most people, the vast majority of people, get a mild illness, to build up some degree of herd immunity as well, so that more people are immune to this disease, and we reduce the transmission at the same time we protect those who are most vulnerable from it. Those are the key things we need to do. We have Cummings, who was quoted as saying what he did in the Sunday Times. You have Patrick Vallance clearly saying that we need to let this virus work its way through the community as long as the NHS doesn't get overwhelmed. But this is an interesting clip from Boris Johnson himself talking about his view on individuals. And take a listen. No one can ignore the harshness of that competition or the inequality that it inevitably accentuates. And I'm afraid that violent economic centrifuge is operating on human beings who are already very far from equal in raw ability, if not in spiritual worth. So we have Johnson um, essentially assigning worth to human beings based on their, and I quote, raw ability, which suggests innate ability. Now, Johnson has, has form, okay? He's quite a long history of using racist slurs, particularly in his journalistic works. Um, and let's face it, his hero, Churchill, the man he models himself on, was no stranger to racism either. Um, Johnson's also made deeply classist comments, you know, when he's talked about, you know, feral, violent, fatherless children. Um, and this is very, very deep roots. Uh, it's very easy to find, uh, in fact, the London Economic actually published this, but it was a letter written to Johnson's father during his time at Eton in 1982, which speaks of a real sense of entitlement that Johnson feels like he was of a class and even perhaps maybe of a race that was there to rule over the rest of us. Now, this is significant and it's significant for several reasons. Firstly, we've already spoken about the issue in care homes, the fact that the elderly are particularly susceptible to the adverse effects of COVID-19 um, and how they have been let down. You know, the, the, the elderly are seen by people who have this misanthropic mindset as perhaps not being economically active and perhaps not valuable to society. I, I, would, I would argue the contrary. These people have a, a wealth of knowledge, of compassion and experience that we can all learn from. Um, but that's just my, my snowflakey view. But it's also significant because this week we had the delayed release of a report that looked at the risk factors for death. We know about age, 
Uh, male sex as well is a, is a risk factor for adverse outcome. But also black and South Asian origin is associated with a significantly increased death rate. Now, a subsequent article in the Health Service Journal claimed that this that a part of this report had actually been removed. And this was a section that requested statements from community leaders and experts about the content of the report and what they thought the causes were. Now, that section did not get through Matt Hancock's censors. What this did is this rendered the report interesting, but pretty toothless. Okay. It tells us that black and Asian people are more likely to die, but it doesn't really examine why. Now, we know from, from data from the last century and beyond that economic and social disadvantage are risk factors for ill health and therefore for death. What we also know is that um, black and minority ethnic background um, are associated with economic and social disadvantage. Therefore, it's not too much of a leap to say that they're associated with um, adverse outcomes um, in terms of health and perhaps increased death rate, particularly in a pandemic situation. Um, it's becoming increasingly clear that racism is ever present in our society at a systemic level. Um, and that economic disadvantage, I think, is being brought into um, sharp focus um, on both sides of the Atlantic. The, the other aspect is that um, black and minority ethnic people are more likely to live in urban um, areas where COVID transmission has been highest. So more crowding, where, use of public crowding, transport. And, and, and also more overcrowding. Yes, the use of public transport. Multi-generational households. Multi-generational yeah. households, mm. particularly in the South Asian community. Mm. We can also touch on the, the ONS statistics that we spoke about earlier that were published a couple of weeks ago, um, which revealed that male security guards and taxi drivers had two of the highest death rates um, from COVID-19. I mean, really quite uh, startling death rates. And again, it has been suggested that there's a high, high proportion of black and minority ethnic um, employees within those um, professions. There may be an element of particularly in the, in the health service, my, my experience of non-white health professionals, how they're treated within the NHS, well, you tended to find certainly they, they lacked the career progression of their white colleagues. Uh, they would often get stuck in dead-end jobs, um, also overlooked for managerial and organisational positions. There was a report published a few years ago called snowy white peaks describing how the senior leadership of the NHS mm. is predominantly white dispro disproportionately compared to how the NHS is made up up to 25-30% of NHS staff being uh, BMME. So that is a bit of the report and an analysis around this differential death rate which would have been interesting but clearly it's not the sort of area government want us to discuss and delve into. And you touched on what's unfolding in America, but there's, there's parallels between economic systems and you know this neoliberal political ideology we share with America and how often 
it's necessary for that economic system to divide and rule the working class and to have black people treated worse than the working class white and using division within society to maintain the power structures. I mean, the, the, the current um, the current wave of protests that we're seeing in America were sparked by uh, the murder of a man called uh, George Floyd, um, who was, uh, there is no other word for it, he was murdered um, by, uh, by the police. Um, and this has exposed again, or it has reignited the discussion about, uh, you know, police brutality, the use of excessive force. But what, what the response we've seen from the authorities in America is utterly terrifying. Now, if anyone was in any doubt about what Donald Trump is, they should not be. And the man has effectively outed himself as a fascist. Uh, those images of him standing, brandishing a Bible while declaring war on his own people, um, minutes before the area he spoke in had to be cleared of protesters by tear gas. Peaceful protesters. Peaceful protesters. Yeah. I mean, the, and the majority of the of, of the protests are peaceful, um, but the, the you know you you're dealing with a a very very tense situation. You're dealing with a president who politically is utterly out of his depth and resorts to racist language, blaming the press and authoritarianism. And this is another point about neoliberalism. Neoliberalism relies on the working classes being divided, yes, but ultimately it relies on a degree of authoritarianism in order to maintain it. Now you look at the police in America, they are highly militarized. Um, I mean, it looks terrifying. They look terrifying to me and I grew up in Belfast, right? But the, you know, they're, they're, they're highly militarized, they're extremely aggressive. Um, one of them shot uh, a reporter with a rubber bullet. You know, you, you're seeing them arresting the press. They're preventing the press from actually reporting um, what's going on. They're beating up uh, peaceful protesters. And all of this is about a discussion on how the police have handled black people. And there is a real institutional problem in America. And we cannot pretend for one moment that those problems do not exist here. Yes, they're, they're not as advanced, but certainly yeah. we seem to be copying most things that America is doing, certainly in, in how we're mutating the NHS, certainly in our lacklustre response as a government to the pandemic. But what we want to leave on... A positive note and from what has gone gone on here certainly it's good to see more journalistic pushback against what the government's doing you've had this independent group of professionals and more people finding the courage to speak out it was interesting the sky report on the nursing homes what struck me there was it seemed that nursing home staff were speaking with more freedom yes. that freedom needs to extend to NHS staff because I think you know that whole aspect of silencing uh, concerns within the health system needs to be broken but in terms of the demonstrations it's good to see that there's a mixture of black and white who are protesting against the injustice in America and 
some of that protest was replicated here in London as well. So, so that is good that we are getting the younger generation politically engaged. And I think they are starting to see through government's actions for what they are. And that can only be a positive in pushing back against this agenda. I, th I think you're right. And also the, the idea that you've now got, you know, you, you, you white people are really starting to understand the concept of white privilege. Um, and I, I think that was that was a major barrier, I think, for for a lot of people when it came to dismantling racism, actually understanding that it's a systemic problem, that it is something which it's not simply it's not simply good enough to call yourself an anti-racist. You have to you have to walk the walk. And as someone with white skin, I have to understand that I will be dealt with differently. Because, simply because I was born with white skin. I will be dealt with differently by the authorities. I will be looked at differently in shops. That's white privilege. Yeah, and um, you know, hopefully this will help that attitude shift. And also an attitude shift in terms of coming back to the NHS, clapping for the NHS, yes, to show you value it, but that needs to be turned into more action. action. And hopefully that's what these... Uh, our podcasts are designed to do is to inform and get people thinking about these issues and hopefully uh, you know turning that into action so you know thank you for all for for listening to us today and please if you found this useful share it with your friends and family and hopefully we'll speak to you again soon thank, thank you, you. Bye bye